The 15th district senatorial seat has been in Republican hands for years. But Mark Boyko is trying to change that political trend with a run of his own. The Democrat joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, three two, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair yes, to I say. I say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in our St. Louis studios is... Colleague Joe Manis. And our very special guest for today... Mark Boyko. A candidate for state senate in the 15th district, a Democrat, um, and a Mizzou grad, as we're about to about to talk. So Yeah, now, those who are listening to the show will, all, will hopefully already have heard from the two Republican candidates in the 15th district, which we uh, have just already run by the time you hear this. We are also running both of the Democrats in the 15th district in our quest to try to get as much information out as we can to listeners who might be interested in voting for arguably um, one of the major Senate seats that's up in the 2016 election. Cer- Am I right there? Cer- certainly the major one that's in St. Louis County that is, I would classify where there's a, there's a Democratic candidate and a Republican candidate. Um, I, I believe the borders of it includes like much of South and Central St. Louis County, a little bit of Western St. Louis County. Is that correct? That's right. So if you take uh, Kirkwood and Glendale and then travel West from there out to Baldwin, uh, and then also go south uh, into Concord and uh, Sunset Hills, that sort of area. Now, have you run for office before? I've not, uh, unless you count running for senior patrol leader of my Boy Scout troop when I was 17 years did old. Did you win? I did win, so I'm putting an undefeated record <laughs> to the test here. A little concerned about that. Well, uh, this is a little-known fact for our listeners here, but uh, th- this host who's speaking right now has run for, for several fraternity offices. One was... One was successful, which was the vice president of the fraternity. <laughs> but when I ran for president of the fraternity, I lost to Brian Milner, who is actually a big wig at the University of Missouri system, actually the University of Missouri Columbia right now, and I have sworn never to run for office again. <laughs> In the interest of full disclosure, I was also the treasurer of the Illini bowling team oh. as an undergrad, uh, but that was an unopposed race. Understood. So, so uh, okay, aside from this, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you grew up, your professional background, and, and then we'll kind of transition into why you decided to jump into politics at all. Right. Yeah, so I'm an, uh, an Army brat. Uh, my father... Retired as a lieutenant colonel. He was an airborne ranger. Where uh, did you grow up? So I, as an army grad, you, you grow up all over the place. Right. Uh, I was born in Kentucky. My first memories are on the parade grounds at West Point, where my father taught hand-to-hand combat, uh, and in the chapel there where my mother uh, would dance and sing uh, for the church. And then uh, from there, we moved uh, anywhere you can, can think of, Kansas, D.C., California. Uh, we came here. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, met my current wife in Sunday school in sixth grade in O'Fallon, Illinois, uh, and so basically been a St. Louis native uh, since then. So you're married? You have children? I am married, uh, and I have two children, 10 and 7. And uh, what do you do for a living? I'm an attorney. Uh, I represent employees uh, who are being wronged in their 401k plan, who are being charged excessive fees. So uh, I represent them bringing cases against either their employer or uh, the Wall Street firm that's 
that's uh, digging into their retirement savings. So what prompted you to jump into this particular race? For our listeners, this is currently held by Senator Eric Schmidt of Glendale. He's term limited out of office. He's running for state treasurer, which has kind of made it an open race on both sides. Why did you decide this particular race was the one that you were interested in? Well, this is a fascinating race. And uh, and I frankly sat down with Deb Lavender, who is the Democratic representative in the, uh, I believe, 90th district. She's my representative. Yeah, she's she's a Kirkwood resident. A Kirkwood resident, and she's endorsed me in this race. But uh, before I was even running, I sat down with her and said, hey, who's running in that race? It's really important that we flip this seat uh, to the Democrats. Frankly, uh, you know, we're both disappointed with with some of the directions that the state goes. And at the same time, as we saw last session, uh, one vote really matters. And it's important that uh, that this seat be flipped. I asked her how we could do that. Uh, and she, she said, the way that we can do that is you can run. And uh, uh, Chris Coster had the same argument when he called me. And, and that's what really brought me into the race. Oh, really? OK, Chris Coster, for our listeners, is Missouri Attorney General and the likely Democratic nominee for governor. He also used to be a Republican. So he's aware that the 15th district is considered, I mean, if you look at the voting record, I mean, of the constituents, it does lean Republican, more so after redistricting a few years ago. So how do you face those challenges and try to um, flip it? Yeah, so what's going on is, uh, and obviously you guys have talked to the Republican uh, candidates and those will, will air as well, but... Uh, frankly, the Republicans in Jefferson City are not in tune with even the Republicans in my district. And the priorities of the people in my district in St. Louis County are very different from what's being, uh, from what's being debated and what's being passed, you know, an hour and a half down the road. So uh, in 2008, when the seat was open before, it was considered a top tier race because it was a more Democratic district and the Republicans still ended up winning in a terrible year for Republicans. Now that the district has gotten more Republican because they added Baldwin and some other western St. Louis city, county cities, um, what's kind of your strategy to making sure 2008 doesn't replicate itself, essentially? In, in 2008, uh, the Democratic candidate who's, who's also endorsed me, uh, Trout, he, he in, all, in all due respect, he raised about $100,000. He got outspent about eight or nine to one yes. in that race. Uh, and that's a big factor. And, and certainly this is not the first time that someone's going to spend a million dollars trying to prevent me from doing what I think is right. And hopefully it's not the last time in my life that that happens either. But first, you have to get through the Democratic primary and you do have a Democratic opponent. That's right. And it's uh, Steve Eagleton. I believe he's the nephew of Thomas Eagleton. He ran in 2008 against the aforementioned Jim Trout. I was talking to you about this before the show, but I, I really do think that he was kind of the party pick in that contest and didn't end up winning the primary. It was a very close primary from what I recall. Um, why do you think that Democrats should choose you over him? Because I'm the one that, that has a chance to win in November, and that's, that's the reason why. You want, you want to explain that? Uh, so I'm the one who... Uh, is in the district. I have children in the district. I, you know, am going to soccer and baseball games in the district. I understand the people of this district. I can get out and meet them. Uh, I, I'm the one that, that's the reason why, frankly, I think the Democratic establishment has has come to see me as being their best chance uh, to flip that. And I'm, I am a little honored and touched by that coming as an, being an outsider myself. But uh, uh, I think it's that important that this seat flips and willing to do what it takes to make that happen. Now, as you 
go around the district campaigning, what are the big issues that you're promoting and what are the issues that are on your constituents' mind that you're talking to? So there, there's three issues on my constituents' mind that they uh, consistently tell me about. And one of them is you've got to expand Medicaid. Uh, and that's one of the big issues that I have too. It's one of the real reasons why I'm in this race. So in the 10 years of being an attorney representing employees on 401k plans, I've been successful at getting a little over $300 million in judgments and settlements that comes back to workers and retirees. I'm very proud of that record. Uh, but at the same time, when I look at Medicaid expansion, that's, that's $2 billion a year uh, in federal tax money that we're already sending to Washington that we don't get back. Uh, and so when I evaluated how can I do the most good uh, you know, that's that's obviously where it is. That's a numbers game. Now, just so our listeners understand, uh, expanding Medicaid is a, a key recommendation, I want to emphasize, of the Federal Affordable Care Act, which revamped insurance coverage in the, in the country. Uh, the Supreme Court had ruled that it was an option for the states, not a requirement. Some states have expanded Medicaid and taken the federal money. The federal money... Uh, covered all the costs of expansion for the first three years, and then at least 90% after that. Missouri opted not to expand Medicaid, so it has not received roughly $2 billion a year that it would have received in 2014, 2015, or 2016. So if Missouri expands Medicaid now, there will be a state payment, not a lot, but there would be a state portion since the state never did it when the feds were covering all of it. So how do you, uh, I mean, for whatever reason, the Missouri General Assembly, the Republican leaders have been adamant they're not going to do it, despite the support of the Missouri Chamber of Commerce and some others. How do you use this as an issue? And how, if you're elected even, you would still be in the minority. How would you get this across? So, uh, you know, I'm I'm accustomed to being the outsider. Again, that comes from being a, an army brat. You're you're the new kid every year or two, no matter what situation you're in. Uh, and also, frankly, my training as an attorney, I specialize in dispute resolution. Uh, I did that at Mizzou and also at NYU. Uh, I went after law school for a year to just focus on solving really complicated problems, uh, things like the September 11th fund or, or how do we compensate victims of the Holocaust and that sort of thing. So understanding these these multi-dimensional problems is um, is just something in my background, something I have a lot of experience doing, and convincing people um, to do things in a, in a reasonable way. When we, Again, from my 401k background, everyone says you need to uh, at least contribute up to the employer match because that's free money. When we talk about Medicaid expansion, we need to find a way to afford uh, Missouri's share because the federal government is matching that uh, you know, 9 or $10 for every dollar that we put in. That's money that's going to get spent in our state uh, by people who need health care and otherwise can't afford it. Now, you, you did mention that you have these mediation and, and persuasion skills, but a lot of the opposition to Medicaid from Republicans, I would say, is, is very much ideological or even philosophical. Some people just don't believe in, you know, giving credence to the Affordable Care Act by taking that Medicaid money. How do you convince somebody who is so philosophically opposed to some, something to change their mind if it's based on ideology as opposed to, you know, politics. statistics or well, policies? Well, and, and part of that is actually flipping the seat. So if I win that election, uh, which you pointed out is, uh, is somewhat of an uphill climb, and one of my primary issues is Medicaid expansion that needs to tell the Republicans, I don't, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what uh, Springfield or Joplin 
or rural Missouri says, if you want to keep these purple districts that surround St. Louis, mm -hmm. then you need to be reasonable on issues like this where, uh, you know, you can't be pro-business and anti-Medicaid expansion is, is kind of how it comes down. You can't be pro-jobs and against free money coming into our state that creates not only jobs, but jobs that are worth having, medical jobs uh, that are worth having that also save lives. This question will kind of be predicated of depending on who becomes governor. If a Republican becomes governor, it's going to be a lot different than a Democrat becomes governor. But I expect uh, right to work, which is shorthand for a piece of legislation that no longer requires an employee that's within something entity that's been unionized to pay union dues. Um, it, it will become a big priority if there's a Republican governor. I think that the Republicans in the legislature will try to pass it within a few months of that governor's inauguration. I, I'm interested in your opinion on that. And in the event that there is a Republican governor and you're in the Senate, what would be your strategy to stop that train from moving out of the station? Sure. And, uh, you know, this is something that, again, it's not in tune with what my district wants. Uh, when you look at my district uh, in St. Louis County in general, the unemployment rate right now is 5.4% countywide. It's even less in my district. Uh, that's, that's both cases lower than the state as a whole. Uh, and so what, we don't need more $8 an hour jobs, right? And that's the Republican argument is that uh, you're going to take away $8 an hour jobs. And there's no evidence to support that that's what happens. But at the same time, even if, even if uh, that does happen, what we need are jobs worth having, uh, jobs that pay well. And the evidence uh, from the surveys that I've seen show that the states that pass right to work see a reduction in average income of over $1,000 per person, whether that, job, whether that person works a union job or a non-union job. And that's not what we need at a time that we need to be expanding uh, the pay of our current workers, not necessarily uh, trying to get jobs at any cost. I mean, without advocating for or against right to work, um, what would you do to try to attract jobs to the state? I mean, Republicans are contending that's one of the things they we have to do in order to get jobs. You're basically saying, no, we don't have to do that. But what should the state do? So we can look to examples of other states. Uh, obviously, Kansas is one uh, that, that cut their corporate taxes like Republicans would like to have happen. And what we saw is that in 2015, the Kansas economy grew by something like 0.2%. Uh, and I've, I've heard that it was lately, basically stagnant, basically stagnant. It might even be in a recession at this point. Uh, and you look at states that have done the opposite, that have have increased their taxes, states like California, uh, and they've seen growth last year of over four percent. And so uh, the argument that gets passed around that says that we need to cut taxes to attract more business is something that fortunately in our federalist society, we have uh, uh, um, experiments that can be run by different states and we can learn from their example. And the lesson to be learned here is that cutting corporate taxes is not the way to expand the economy. The person that you're trying to succeed in the Senate, Eric Schmidt, actually sponsored, I think, a couple of tax cuts over his career, including one that is going to gradually cut the income tax in Missouri to, I think, by a half of a percent over time, depending yes. on how much uh, general revenue grows. What was kind of your thought on that? Because while many Democrats opposed that and Governor Nixon vetoed it, um, I believe that uh, Coster told Joe that he was actually a supporter of that bill and is actually one of the few Democratic supporters of that. So what's kind of your overall thought of that particular uh, uh, law that I think is going to become more consequential in, in subsequent yeah, years? Yeah, it begins, the cuts begin next year. Absolutely. Yeah. And things like Medicaid expansion to me are an easy problem because that's 
free money that should be coming into our state, things like how to deal with with these tax cuts that that are going to start being uh, being felt in the next couple of years. Those are hard problems, and uh, they're hard because we're already not taking advantage uh, of money that we should be able to put to good use. Uh, every dollar that we spend on infrastructure gets matched by the federal government, so it gets not only used to support Missouri business and Missouri families, but has a multiplying effect. Uh, the dollars that we can spend on health care, the same thing. And so uh, when, when I saw the legislature doing things like, for example, this last term, uh, turning back about $8 million in family planning money uh, that the federal government was going to uh, pay, that, and that did not require a state match. That was free money coming into our state to pay for family planning. Uh, they turned that money down and instead decided to double tax the citizens. So we're already paying the federal government that $8 million. And now they've said, you know, we need as a state to come up with the $8 million ourselves. That means the citizens are paying twice, once to Washington and once to Jefferson City uh, for a service that they should only have to pay for once. What's your, what's your position on abortion rights? Are, are you in favor of them or do you generally oppose them? I'm endorsed by NARAL. I don't believe that it is a legislator's job to get in between a woman and her doctor. Uh, I don't believe it's our job to try to teach better than teachers do, to try to be doctors better than doctors are, uh, or to try to put ourselves and substitute our judgment for the judgment of the great professionals in this state. Now, there's also guns has been a major issue in Missouri in the last few months. There's a bill that's sitting on the governor's desk. By the time readers, by the time listeners hear this, he may have taken action on it, but it was basically it would basically expand gun rights without getting into the details. But from your um, perspective, um, how big of an issue would guns be in your campaign? Uh, so it's big. When I we had started out talking about what people in my district tell me that they want, and number one was Medicaid expansion. Number two is do something about guns. That's the second most frequent request that I get. Uh, and again, when we look at what our state has done, you know, we had background checks and we got rid of those nine years ago. Uh, and instead, uh, the lessons that we learned from uh, Ferguson and, and from Kirkwood City Hall was to expand access to guns in the state. And the results are in. John Hopkins did a survey that came out a couple months ago and said uh, that at the time that Missouri, Missouri passed these and as a result... Uh, or at least since they were passed, uh, suicide rates have gone up 16%. Uh, gun homicides have gone up 16% in our state uh, at a time where nationally those have been going down. Yeah. And uh, at a time where Connecticut actually did the opposite of what we did, they did not have these background checks. They passed a law to put in these background checks, uh, and their homicide rate went down 40%. So ours has gone up, well, theirs has gone down. And that's a simple answer uh, is to put back what we had before the Republicans took over the legislature, uh, some of those measures that were uh, perfectly reasonable uh, and perfectly made sense and saved lives. I, I actually remember when the bill that you're talking about passed. It passed in 2007. It was attached to uh, an expansion of what was called the Castle Doctrine. Yeah. And, I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but what it did was it no longer required like a sheriff to do a background check whenever you bought, I guess, a concealable gun or yes, something like yes. that. So that would be like handguns or whatnot. What I remember is that only nine lawmakers out of 197 voted against that. So that means the vast majority of Democrats, along with Republicans, voted for that. So and it kind of gets me to my next question. There are a lot of 
Democrats in rural parts of the state who may or may not get elected who are more favorable to uh, gun rights. So how are you going to make your voice heard, not only when you may be entering a Republican legislature, but not even – you may be entering a situation where not even all Democrats agree with that view. And this is not an issue of, of – uh, I mean, I hesitate to call it gun rights, right? This is a safety uh, measure, a simple background check. Uh, that goes on again at the sheriff level. This isn't uh, controlled by the federal government if you're concerned about the Second Amendment and about you know, the federal government interfering. Uh, this is just a common sense measure that now with the benefit of the last 10 years of experience, we know that it saves between 500 and 1,000 Missouri lives every year if we were to put this uh, back into place. And the people in my district who I'm going to go there and represent, want that to happen. And, and I, you may have to be my reference here, Joe, because I wasn't in the state. But I believe in 2004, when Michael Gibbons was running for re-election, he ran against Jeannie Kirkton, who made his vote on overriding conceal and carry a really big issue. And I believe Gibbons almost lost that race because it was such a big issue in that district, which also included Webster and Kirkwood. Is that correct, Joe? Yeah. Now, now at that time, the 15th was a bit more of a swing district. There was more Democrats in it. But yes, um, the in, in 2003, the Missouri General Assembly overrode then-Governor Bob Holden's veto of the concealed carry bill, which had been passed by the General Assembly about four years after Missouri voters had narrowly rejected a bill allowing concealed carry. So uh, by by 2004, it was particularly a hot issue in the suburbs. The problem with that statewide vote, it was that it was extremely polarized. Rural Missouri had been overwhelmingly in favor of concealed carry, and the suburbs and the cities were overwhelmingly against it. That, so I just mentioned that to say that it's been an issue in your neck of the woods for a long time. So I want to I want to just uh, ask about your perception of, of ethics and ethics bills that have happened in the legislature. That seems to be a big talking point among candidates from Republican and Democrats. Although that, little gets passed. Little gets passed. <laughs> Um, this past session, for example, there was a big push at the beginning to ban lobbyist gifts or install a waiting period before a lawmaker be- could become lobbyist. But that ran into pretty overwhelming opposition in the Missouri Senate, the chamber that you're going into right now. So what's your general philosophy towards changing the state's ethics laws? And how do you see your ability to break that log jam so something gets done next year or the year after? So, I mean, we need to have improvement, right? And uh, coming in as an outsider to be to be able to say this is exactly the way that it should be approved, that would be irresponsible of me. But we need to have improvement. Uh, we have a situation in my race uh, on the Republican side where one of the candidates is getting nearly all of his money from Springfield and Joplin. And we know uh, that you know when he goes to Jefferson City and is casting votes, there's going to be a question mark over whether he's casting votes for the 15th senatorial district or for two rich people in Springfield and Joplin, Missouri. And that's uh, David Humphreys and his sister, Sarah Atkins. And that's all public, so I, I figure we need to just let our listeners know yeah, who that is. Yeah, and who are you referring to? Which candidate? Andrew Koenig. Yeah, I know. I was just I was trying to get him to say it. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm breaking the illusion of secrecy here, but continue. <laughs> I just want our listeners to know what we're talking about. And I'm not saying that to pick on him in particular. He's certainly not the only person uh, who has been and wants to be in Jefferson City who, who has the same sorts of pressures. And we need, to, uh, we need to alleviate those pressures is what we need to do. And it's not, uh, I'm not saying that as a personality fault against Andrew uh, or, or anyone else. I'm saying that as a factual reality is that in our state, 
legislators are allowed to do things and, and after they leave office to profit in ways that in other states they aren't. Uh, and I think that that does have a negative effect both on what actually happens in Jefferson City and in the public's perception of what happens in Jefferson City. Now, assuming that you get the nomination, you're going to have this daunting financial challenge of raising enough money to get your message out. We just talked about the uh, money that Andrew Koenig has. Uh, Rick Stream, who's the other Republican, is also raising a decent amount of money. Whichever Republican wins the primary, there's going to be lots of money coming in to help them. So how do you get your message out when you will most likely be heavily outspent if you're the Democratic nominee? Well, and again, and, and, and I still say this is a purple district. This is a district that can go either way, uh, particularly if I get the right amount of support. And the people uh, who look at what districts uh, deserve that support are going to look at this. And, you know, just like you guys are giving this particular race a fair amount of time on your program, it's going to be given a fair amount of time on a lot of people's minds. Uh, and they're going to say, look, this is going to be one of those battlegrounds. And it's absolutely going to be a fight. Uh, there's absolutely going to be a lot of money spent. Like I said before, it, it won't be the first time someone spent a million dollars trying to stop me from doing what's right. Do you mentioned Coster and, and talking with him. I, I believe that Claire McCaskill, the U.S. Senator, actually lives in the 15th District. She's yes, a she Kirkwood does. resident. And along with Coster, she has been pretty generous about supporting legislative candidates in the last couple of cycles. I mean, last cycle, which was not terribly successful for Democrats, I think she spent maybe two or $300,000 of her own money trying to help Democrats get elected to the House and Senate. Do you think she may have like a little bit of a, a more interest in this race because she lives in the 15th district and may be able to either give you a little bit of financial or organizational support? Have you talked with her, her political staff, or have you talked with anybody else besides the people that you mentioned? I've knocked on a lot of doors. I haven't gotten to hers yet. Uh, so I haven't talked to her in particular uh, about this. I've certainly had had conversations with, with her uh, group, as I have had with uh, people who work in other statewide campaigns. They all understand what's at stake at this uh, race. Like I said, it, it, it took a lot, um, a lot of soul searching, a lot of digging, and a lot of research into making sure that this is winnable. You know, I'm, I, I have a full-time job as an attorney and a full-time job as a dad. Uh, I've got plenty on my plate, and I would not be running here if I didn't think that this was a seat that could be flipped to the Democrats. I, I think the other thing you have to also keep in mind is a lot, the, there, are, there are not many competitive Senate races in the state of Missouri this year because a lot of them are drawn in either very Democratic or Republican areas. So, for example, Gina Walsh and Jamila Nishida running for re-election. Jamila Nishida is a primary opponent, but the Republican's not going to win there, just as people who are running in deep southwest Missouri aren't going to lose to Democrats. But there are several other races that Democrats are trying to flip. What are kind of your expectations collectively how Democrats are going to do, given the national environment and maybe given a more state-level environment about what people think about the legislature? Because that will affect how effective you're going to be able to be, how many Democrats are going to be in the Senate. I mean, obviously, a lot of money is going to go into the governor's race and the other statewide offices. Uh, and so... Uh, at the same time, again, like we saw this last term, everyone understands the importance of a single vote uh, and spe specifically dealing with SJR 39, the importance of a single vote uh, in really either chamber uh, to change the policy and change, more importantly, the, the public and national perception of the state of Missouri as being a uh, state that is open uh, for business, that's understanding of our citizens, that doesn't treat 
one group of people worse than another group of people because of some label that anyone's put on them. And the other thing that we'll have to be watching is if a Democrat wins the lieutenant governor's office, that might give the Senate Democrats a little bit of an edge since they preside over the Senate. We'll be watching your race very closely. We appreciate you coming in today and, and talking with us about the race and your, your views on issues. Uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would we follow you on Twitter? Uh, so you can follow me at just uh, at Boyko Mark, uh, or you can uh, go to my website, which is boykoforsenate.com. Is it four with the number four or no, four it's as spelled out F O R? Some people do the number, some people do the word. <laughs> we'll be back next it's a time. Free country. It, it is a free country. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. <laughs>